Sally McManus shocked Australia in 2019 when she declared on becoming Secretary of the ACTU, which is the peak union body, that bad laws need to be broken. To the cheers of union activists up and down the country, she declared, our movement has known that breaking laws and risking punishment is sometimes necessary because it is the only moral path to fairness. Yet that's the same McManus who said, supporting Labour's industrial relations legislation last year, that she didn't want strikes. Confused? Who wouldn't be? The union movement seems to be full of contradictions. You have union officials who are seen as progressive on social issues, but who put a great deal of effort into quashing industrial action, like the teachers' union in Victoria last year. Then there are officials with conservative political profiles who are prepared to see a fight, like the Australian Workers' Union at Santos in Port Benython in South Australia, who, alongside the AMWU Metal Workers' Union, have been taking action since November. And you have officials who talk about militancy, only to shut things down, like the Transport Workers' Union, leading bus workers onto the picket line in Adelaide, with fighting talk one day, and hosing down action at the first available opportunity. So what's going on? What drives union officials? Can workers afford to leave it all to them? And if not, what do rank-and-file activists need to argue as the way forward? So to discuss these and other questions, we're joined by a number of experienced union activists. Erin Dahl is a wharfie, a member of the Maritime Union of Australia and a member of the site committee at Hutchinson at Port Botany in Sydney. Marcus Banks is a researcher, a member of the National Tertiary Education Union, and he was involved in the successful wage theft campaign at RMIT University in Melbourne. And Sophie Cotton is also a member of the NTU and is on the branch committee of the union at the University of Sydney, helping to lead the current wave of strikes. You're listening to The Sound of Solidarity, brought to you by Solidarity. We're a revolutionary socialist group in Australia, and if you'd like to find out more about us, our website is solidarity.net.au. I'm Tommy Gadir, and I'm recording this episode on unceded Wurundjeri land in Nam or Melbourne. And I'm David Glanz, also on Wurundjeri land. Welcome all. Let's start with a pretty basic question, why unionism matters. Unions have been in decline for 40 years. According to the Australian Bureau of Statistics, the proportion of workers in unions has fallen since 1992, from 41 to 12.5% of the workforce, about 1.4 million people. So why do unions matter and how do we rebuild them? Yeah, I'm happy to take this one. Hi, David. Hi, Tammy. Um, I'm coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Um, Yeah, I think unions are fundamentally about workers coming together and fighting for their rights. And sometimes we can, you know, mistakenly think that unions are bodies that sit above workers, even, you know, service providers. And I think that can happen to highly bureaucratised unions, but at their core and certainly at their best, unions are the workers themselves coming together organizing using our collective power you know there's no use going on strike by yourself doesn't shut anything down really it's just really it's just failing to report to work Uh, you get a target on your back for that but 
actually when we fight together and when we organize ourselves into unions you do certain rights do come with that you have certain protections to go on strike during bargaining for example um, you obviously have that safety in numbers and that power in numbers to actually shut down production and stand up for each other go out on protest together and I think just you know We'll get into some of the details later, but just a quick example from where I work in Port Botany at Hutchinson Ports, you know, we had a, a big safety dispute where a worker was thrown out of her uh, shuttle machine that she was driving, ended up in a coma, you know, easily could have could have died if things had gone worse. And we had a huge stoppage and dispute there to completely changed the way that the traffic management was dealt with. So we got, you know, big safety improvements and that was because, you know, we had the backing of the union. We took that action together and, and ultimately our demands were met. And it's the case, isn't it, that people join unions when they do something. I was just talking to a member of the Australian Services Union uh, just the other day and he said that they're gearing up for an enterprise bargain agreement uh, campaign and management is also running some attacks and they're recruiting up to 15 people a day into the union. Is is that other people's experience too? When I was working at Simplink, the uh, membership uh, grew by 2,000 on average during every enterprise bargaining round. In fact, it was a fantastic opportunity to build the union there, but there was also a problem in the sense that the union officials relied on the enterprise bargaining rounds rather than the day-to-day crap that people put up with at work and shouldn't have to put up with in terms of being victimised or not having their pay sorted out or not getting a shift that they want. And, and unionism matters on a day-to-day level as well, outside of the more spectacular you know, strike activity. Because if you have a strong union organisation at work, management rights and prerogatives are curtailed and that is important uh, in the day-to-day experiences of workers. Union activists often find themselves pulled between two competing arguments. One is that workers should just follow the leader of their officials and that's often couched in terms of unity is strength and if we argue amongst ourselves it only strengthens the boss. But people can also flip to the other argument that the officials are rubbish, but that can lead to demoralisation, passivity, even to people resigning. So how should rank and file activists respond to avoid both of those traps? Maybe I'll start us off here. I'm Sophie Cotton, zooming in and calling in from um, Gadigal land here in Sydney, which is also where I work at the Sydney Uni. I think union activists need to organise and that there's no short there's no shortcuts there's no tricks you need to organize from the bottom up i think the tricky thing with this argument is that there's truth to both sides it's true that we do need unity and that unity is strength and that the a united strike is the only thing that can and can build action and it's often true that the officials are rubbish and conservative and hold us back but the problem is i think when you only take one end of this one end of that stick you can lead yourself lead yourself into the trouble and, and and this is the kind of thing we see all the time there are workers at my university who constantly complain the NTU's rubbish they don't stand up for casuals they don't stand up for professionals and it becomes just a complaining fest 
where the most radical person is the person with the most complaints, but actually that leads to no action, and it does lead to, well, I've seen people resign for that exact reason. And likewise, if we were to have followed the, the dictates of the union officials, we would be nowhere where we were. We wouldn't have had the strong picket lines that we did when we were told that they were illegal. We wouldn't have had the kind of the kind of staunch eight days of strike action, sorry, seven days of strike action that would take it so far the eighth this next week. So we and we wouldn't have had the, the wins. I mean the last bargaining round we had someone coming in, one of the one of the people with the officials coming in and, and they screamed at us that sick pay was never going to happen and how dare you even think that and that's why we need to shut down the strikes. Well we struck for seven days and last Tuesday we won sick pay for casual. We proved them wrong. So in terms of your final part of your question, how should rank and file activists respond? I do think that at level of um, organisation from the bottom up, we don't just tell people to join the union and vote one day, strike if the union say. We say join the union and fight and organise and organise your colleagues. I mean, at my university, we're in the midst of doing exactly this. It's about those tiny little disputes. We're organising at the student centre where they've just threatened to sack everyone and put them on a a lower level of contract and when they're when you're organizing uh, at the workplace level it gives you the power to both call the officials to support you as much as they will but then also crucially go beyond them and, and take your own action where they won't support you it's also speaking from Wurundjeri land marcus banks here talking about rmit it's a question of leadership and the question of unity whose leadership and whose unity i think that rank of file activity is not just about building levels of activism, but building leadership. And everybody needs to be a leader in a rank and file group. And that's what unionism is about, leading other people and organising with other people. And that's a counterposed position sometimes to the way that the officials see it, because they, they're not workers. They're sitting in a different position in society. They're the brokers between capital and labour, and they will see leadership as residing in a bureaucratic sense, whereas we see leadership, well, I see leadership and Solidarity sees leadership as um, essential to working class unity, to be able to build an organisation, a union that is active everywhere that you are. And that requires, I can give an example at RMIT, during a wage theft campaign, where the assessment of how things were going within the casuals group was about how many people were actually leading, how many people were taking their own initiatives to do things in a unified way uh, that helped build the campaigns that we were involved in. And and that's the trick, and that's the point of uh, rank-and-file activity, to be able to build a layer of leaders in the class that can strengthen the union and the unity of that union in activity. Yeah, I think Sophie and Marcus both answered that question really, really well. Sort of a motto or a, a saying, I guess, that we have in solidarity that I think really helps encapsulate this approach is to work with and against union officials. So we do recognise the the standing, the respect, the you know, position of authority and the simply the resources that union officials have that means they have, you know, that ability to get a message out there that if they do take a strong position, it's going to carry a lot more weight than, you know, a, a 
minority of socialists arguing persistently at work with our workmates and and that's really important and we want them to do that we want to be able to bring out workers that might not otherwise you know listen to us or take that issue seriously you know the maritime union for example you know the as particularly the sydney branch that have that communist history they do really make an effort to get out to demonstrations to stand up for progressive issues against racism for you know first nations rights sexism um against homophobia all these questions like they've taken a really strong stand on climate change and we want that message to get through to union members that this is union business and we really you know encourage and, and promote that it's one of the you know proudest traditions i think of the MUA and of you know other progressive unions but we have to be prepared to take a position against our officials when they're winding the struggles backwards or when they're not responsive to the will of the membership or where they are coming under you know the pressure of anti-strike laws or the pressure to toe the line in the, you know of the the Labor Party or whatever it might be. And that sort of back and forth, I think that's, you know, the art of revolutionary politics. But ultimately what both of those things are about, with or against, is actually about building an independent body of rank and file union members who can make that decision together about when are we going to work with and when are we going to take, you know, our own stand. Recently, we've seen a few examples of workers prepared to go much further than their officials were suggesting. Uh, in particular, nurses in both Western Australia and New South Wales have overturned their officials at mass meetings. What kinds of conclusions can we draw from this? One conclusion we can draw from that is that it really is the workers who most sharply experience the, these realities on the job. and. Union officials are not always going to be able to predict when that pain is really going to find an outlet. You know, you talked about nurses in, in New South Wales are pushing a really hard position for a, a 7% wage increase uh, against the, the will of the, the union bureaucracy that, uh, you know, essentially wanted to keep it at the New South Wales wage cap. Um, of, or, you know, maybe slightly higher at 3%, but certainly not the, the 7% that the membership were willing to go for. You know, these nurses have been through the horrors of COVID. You know, people are mass exodusing the public health system. But that daily experience is something that they feel and only, you know, they are going to react to in that visceral way. Like Marcus said, union officials, whether they're, you know, strong militant progressive ones or awful conservative ones, their wages and conditions are not actually tied to the job anymore. They don't feel the fatigues of shift work. They don't, you know, know what it's like or, rem or remember anymore what it's like, you know, to, to stand, you know, on a freezing cold ship all night, for example. Um, and I think, you know, you do see a pattern where workers might put up with a lot for a long time, but when they do decide to fight, they go hard and they can go much, much further than what anyone really predicted because there's a sense that if we're going to take on this fight, we have to win it because this is our one 
chance. And that's really where you need, you know, an organized revolutionary group and an organized rank and file group to capture that energy and capture that anger and organize it. Um, I think it, it tells us something as well about capitalism. I think people often look at those histories, the 40 years of decline of the union movement, union membership going down, union strike action going down, and they take it to a determinist conclusion that that's how it's always going to be. But capitalism doesn't work like that. I mean, the, the example of the New South Wales nurses who've seen wages going down with the uh, New South Wales Liberal government wage wage cap and then this exploding inflation, which I think has hit the entire working class, and there's just this absolute contradiction between real wages going down, gross operating profits are going through the roof. I mean, the, the government, that the Australian Bureau of Statistics measures the amount of national income that goes to bosses and the amount that goes to workers. The amount that goes to workers has never been lower since they started measuring it, and the amount that goes to bosses has never been higher. I mean, that's what people are, are genuinely experiencing with fuel uh, and uh, fuel prices, food prices, everything going through the roof. And the amount of anger that, that is coming coming through from the working class is, is breaking through some of those old uh, habits that have, that have happened. I mean, for a union bureaucrat who's just sitting there thinking about how can we get the New South Wales government to slightly lift up its cap, we'll really trick them. If we just go for 3%, then maybe we can just just move it. That's the way they're thinking. That's not the way the workers are thinking. And so I think it's just an example of how, you know, the, the crises of the system can can shift and change these these, these old ways and, and produce new realities. And rank and file activity can um, help that break as well. I remember when I was working at Sampling and there was a vote to, to walk out on strike over a particular issue. And the way you need to organise in that workplace to, you know, having regular union meetings, to have discussions, bring the officials along to put their best arguments forward and then arguing against them <laughs> if, if necessary and raising the political and uh, level and understanding of the membership means that at a certain point when there's an assessment that we could take action, you're still surprised about who, who walks out and who doesn't. You know, there's some people that um, voted Liberal Party who were the first to walk out, whereas some people who talk big and from a Labor Party point of view stayed at, stayed at work. And so the surprising expectations there and the ability to take a calculated risk to take action is, um, you know, the risk is minimised with a, with a stronger uh, rank and file organisation at work and stronger unionism at work, even over particularly just a narrow workplace issue. Before I ask the next question, I think it's just worth reminding ourselves that we're recording this episode while there are some gigantic struggles going on in Europe, particularly in Britain and France. Uh, in Britain, there's been strike days of up to half a million workers across a variety of industries. In France, there are is clearly as we as we record this episode a rolling struggle which is beginning to take on incredibly radical uh, uh, radical um, elements and yet in both those countries you could have gone back three five ten years ago and you would have found union activists quite demoralized about the potential and in both of those actions there's struggle that hasn't been seen in, in the case of britain for a generation but we're also seeing union officials refusing to call the all-out action that would actually lead to a victory. So 
I think the word I'm looking for here is contradiction. And it's something that solidarity has long argued. And it's something that I think some of you have already hinted at, that the union officials are in a contradictory position. Because I think, as Erema just said, that they're not part of the workforce. Their standard of living is not directly linked to the outcomes for their members. And that makes them professional negotiators. And to be honest, strikes can be a bit of a nuisance for union officials. But on the other hand, if they don't organise action, then the bosses will never negotiate with them and they don't get deals. And ultimately, they could either the union could go bankrupt uh, or they could actually lose an election because they become unpopular. So how do we understand the way that the union officials are pulled between those two poles of attraction? Well, it's been talked about as uh, unionism is a movement and unionism as an organisation. There's, I think, 100 employees of the NTEU, of National Tertiary Education Union. And there's also the need to pay them and to maintain their jobs and to maintain the organisation that is the NTEU. So that's a pressure on people running the organisation, which are the full-time officials, especially, you know, up the higher, the national officials uh, have to look at, you know, present um, their bank accounts every year to various government organisations. So there's that pressure. And also the, to get union dues in, you need to have more members. So even on a very pragmatic level, there needs to be a movement uh, of unionism as well. And so there's, the officials are caught within that contradiction, as well as um, the, the members, about how to respond to events and how to build the union, but also, as Erema was saying, that seize the opportunities when they start to arise. And the people who see those opportunities, unsurprisingly, the people who are most active are on the ground. And so having an organisation that can respond to those and to put pressure on the officials to support them can be either easy or hard. And sometimes the officials see there's a... Yeah, you know, a one to the argument. I think it's the best way to put it is not working with and against, but winning officials to feel confident enough to support a campaign that we think is important. And what sort of difference is there between left and right? Because, as a, I mean, the media in particular focuses a lot on left and right in terms of Labour factions. And we tend to think that left officials, we prefer left officials. But Why? And to what extent can right officials actually be pushed into action too? I think my union, and Erin's as well, is a good example example of this. The NTU, National Tertiary Education Union, is often seen as, you know, one of the most progressive unions, often supporting the Greens in, 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 a, in elections. So not even the Labor left, imagine that. Um, but in reality, on the ground, we've seen that they are just as, just as bound by the pressures of of reformism and and of the the pressures of being in that bureaucratic condition. I mean, in the last couple of years, in response to the COVID pandemic, when the bosses, the university bosses all across the sector told us that they're in absolute dire financial straits, the world was going to end. I mean, we've now seen their financial reports and we know that was a lie, but 
at the time, there was this this immense pressure when the, the union came forward with a proposal that we could cut the pay of the of all of the workers in response from a pinky promise from the bosses that they weren't going to that they weren't going to cut jobs. People often think the left versus right is the biggest thing, but actually, the people from the, the you know the leftmost union can actually be profound, profoundly conservative. We've seen it again and again. I mean, compare the nurses, for example, traditionally a right union. Their their attitude when their workers started organising for a seven percent pay rise was to say, uh, "Let's take it. Let's take it to the vote." And and workplace after workplace after workplace in these votes voted seven percent, seven percent, seven percent. But when when our our workers started arguing for a CPI plus two point five percent, the union was just as happy to go in workplace by workplace and beat those union those those unionists, those union members back and saying CPI plus 2.5, never going to happen. It's an illegal, illegal construct. So I think, I think it's a, I think it's a mistake to see it as left versus right. We always want a left official. We want them to support social, social causes, trans rights. We want them to support migrant rights, refugee rights. But at the end of the day, it's the work, it's, it's the contradiction with the workers that matters. You talk, David, about the pressure on union officials to be at the table to conclude a deal. And I think that is a, you know, a real feature of the sort of structure, the, you know, the frameworks within union officials are acting. And it's if you don't understand that structure that they're operating within, then I think you can mistakenly think, you know, the answer is just to get more and more and more left-wing people voted in. Of course we do. We do want the progressive union officials in there. They are going to take up the causes. They are, you know, potentially going to be much more industrially militant as well. But, you know, as an example, recently in the Maritime Union, we've had um, the tugboat workers uh, who work for Spitzer, uh, which is owned by Maersk, a massive multinational shipping line, um, in a, you know, three-year industrial dispute. And... Spitzer were getting, you know, sick of it. They wanted to end it, and so they threatened a lockout across every port in the country, insidiously knowing that this was going to go to the Fair Work Commission on a ruling, and what they were actually hoping for was for the Fair Work Commission to rule to terminate all further uh, industrial action, basically end the bargaining and arbitrate a final outcome. Actually, they didn't get that. The union officials beat that back somewhat in the courts to a six-month suspension of industrial action. But here's where, you know, they found themselves at the crossroads because rather than escalating against, you know, Spitzer pulls out a gun, you know, puts a gun to your head, well, you need to pull out a bigger one, you know, and what we could have seen happen, for example, is the union call a preemptive strike before that scheduled lockout was going to happen. We could have seen, you know, declarations of nationwide stoppages of other maritime workers being pulled off the job, but all that would have been in, you know, defiance of the laws. And this is where the union is just simply not willing to risk their legal rights to continue to bargain. And so they wound back, they declared the six-month suspension a victory. Now, it wasn't as bad as what Switzer wanted, but it certainly wasn't a victory to have all your ability to take industrial action suspended. And 
they've honoured that suspension. And it's and I should say it's not only the maritime unions, it's uh, tugboat operators are represented by three unions, so you have an even more difficult situation of conservative and militant unions sort of trying to negotiate through this together. But the impact of that has been to completely take the wind out of the sails of the action, of the momentum, of the passion that those workers had to fight. They've actually sacked now one of the leading delegates on the tugs, um, and it's a very demoralised kind of situation. But the unions see that as the price they have to pay to stay at the table and to get a deal within the legal framework that we're stuck in. Just following on what uh, Sophie was talking about, the um, un national union officials at the beginning of the pandemic responded to a campaign, as it turned out a false campaign, by uh, the university management to say that they were going to be in financial collapse and that the management of the university said we need pay cuts across uh, the sector and we need to have mass sackings. The union response, officials' response, was to, um, to to try to do a deal, which was called the Joint Protection Framework, and to allow those smaller pay cuts to come through and to have supposedly smaller job losses to occur. And that's how it was being sold to the members. There's a mass re response to that, rank-and-file response to that, that meant that this so-called joint protection framework was broken at every university except for three. And so it was never implemented. But the most important point I wanted to make is this left-right divide. The response by the members shifted the union to the left. And that's the way of actually shifting the union, not to rely on the people at the top to shift things to the left necessarily, though it's better if they're left wing. That doesn't actually shift necessarily the union to the left. It's rank and file activity that shifts unions to the left. And so out of that dispute, which had intense debate, emerged some rank and file networks, especially at Sydney University, at RMIT and at Melbourne University, but not coincidentally were led by people from Solidarity, uh, amongst others. And those campaigns that were around variety of issues drew in and helped cohere and gel rank and file organisations. And out of all of that, in the next year or two, uh, elected positions shifted to the left so that national councils and other bodies of the union and also the officials elections put in more left-wing people in them. And so questions around transphobia that have been rejected by these bodies in the last couple of years got passed and industrial actions and more democracy came in through the union. So it was through those activities and through those organisations that actually shifted the union to the left rather than this idea that left-wing ideas are somehow free-floating and that they don't... The lived experience of what people do and, and how they want to the ideas comes through that activity and that has to... And the best way of doing that is from below. So McManus caused waves when she suggested banned industrial laws should be broken. It gave us uh, a real boost. Uh, but in reality, it's a challenge to find any officials prepared to sanction a fight that could bring them into conflict with the law. Um, so can any of you 
tell us a little bit more about what's going on there? Yeah, I do have a lot to say on this topic. I remember when Sally McManus was elected to that position, the ACTU, and made that statement, and it it really was a boost. That was a, a time under, I can't remember now if it was Abbott or Turnbull or which bloody liberal, but it was under a liberal government where they were, you know, aggressively uh, pursuing the construction union under the ABCC, and we were seeing unions being you know, find more for breaking these industrial laws. For example, just officials going onto sites without right of entry permits, you know, taking up uh, like serious safety issues where pedestrians had died from collapsing walls, these sort of things. The, the unions were getting fined more heavily than what the building companies were for this gross negligence. One construction worker dies every week on an Australian construction site and yet it's the union that is trying to defend their safety and their conditions that, you know, is supposedly criminal, not the, you know, the building companies that have this blood on, on their hands. So that's, you know, that's a little bit of, of the context. And this also led to the ACTU launching the Change the Rules campaign. And within that Change the Rules campaign, which was aimed at uh, improving uh, industrial legislation, essentially up through a lobbying campaign of the Labor government, but uh, sorry, the Labor opposition, and as part of an election campaign, but it did bring workers out onto the streets in large numbers. And within that, Solidarity launched... Uh, a sort of campaign within the campaign for the right to strike to build off what uh, Sally McManus had said and but try to hold that position to account which I think we now rightfully see was needed because very very quickly those statements uh, were sort of sidelined and really became a footnote not the main thrust of what the the union movement was um, you know was fighting for and yet, shortly after that, a massive strike that was planned of Sydney train drivers in a 24-hour strike as part of their campaign, which was, you know, getting a lot of media attention. It was going to throw the city into chaos. It was going to be a really powerful action. That was terminated by the Fair Work Commission, and immediately the head of the RTBU union came out of that court hearing and gave a press release saying that they would abide by the laws and the train drivers were furious and you know we actually met quite a few of those train drivers who agreed with our position that they should go on strike anyway that unions um, and union members should be directed by their own democratic decisions not by these arbitrary laws and you know within that we, we actually built quite a, a, a powerful right to strike campaign but it, it is so desperately needed because without the right to strike um, over those little injustices or those big injustices where they, you know, sack someone, where they don't abide by the things that have been agreed, you know, when they try to force overtime, those, those daily struggles that Marcus was talking about, we forget what the essence of unionism is and we don't have a chance to actually operate uh, or to exercise, you know, those muscles and use them. And, you know, 
one of these quotes we hear is union memberships like gym membership. If you don't use it, you know, you lose it. But that doubly goes for strike action. Actually, that memory and that experience of organizing strike and using your power on a daily basis is so, so critical. And I think to go right back to where we started, I would say that is the most fundamental cause of the decline of the union movement is actually not having that power on a daily basis to show people and prove to people in practice what unionism can do. Now, there's been reference to things like the NTU taking up trans rights and and we know that the union movement has taken up issues around, for instance, uh, family violence, leave and, and so on, all of which is, is to the good. But we often run into arguments amongst workmates that unions should stick to their bread and butter, to economic issues like wages and conditions, and that so-called political issues um, either are irrelevant or are a distraction. So what do, do you say to that? Such a perspective is just a death knell to the union movement. I mean, unions have historically played a role in fighting fascism, ending war. I mean... And I think to restrict your understanding of workers to purely wages and conditions um, is is disastrous. Each issue is a each each issue each social issue is an opportunity for the union. I mean, I feel this really strongly in in the in the in the NTU and where we've been fighting for uh, trans rights and fighting for gender affirmation leave, where we've actually found an opportunity to bring people who would never have touched. The union otherwise but to be brought into the union and see that we can have a, a combined and a collective struggle likewise with aboriginal rights it's not just aboriginal workers who care about the aboriginal employment targets that we're fighting for at, at the in the universities uh, it's also um non, non-indigenous workers who see this as their, as their issue a good example is the climate strikes which kind of broke open as a student movement but at, at the at the university we actually found that we were able to um organize workers to walk off the job for the climate strike the same workers who just a year or two earlier hadn't walked off the job when we were fighting for our conditions um i think it's a misunderstanding of workers to to see them in such a restricted light and it would be you know in, a, in an era where people are care so deeply and passionately about all sorts of social justice issues from refugees to lgbt rights um, to limit ourselves to that. I think we lose not only the opportunity to um, organise around those things but and to organise in the most effective way around those things, actually building striking workers who are the ones who can, you know, are the only people who can actually stop a war, the only people who can actually uh, put a halt to fascism historically. I think we, we, we also just simply miss an opportunity to build the union. Yeah, just even a very small example, when I worked at the Commonwealth Employment Service in Brunswick, I had a, uh, a big poster up of Nikki Winmar, who um, is an Indigenous Australian footballer. Who uh, it's a photo of him pointing to his ch- lifting up his jumper and pointing to his chest, saying he's black because of the racist abuse that was going on um, amongst uh, a group of uh, people in the crowd, and that became an iconic picture uh, around anti-racism. And why I mention that is because it gives you an opportunity to talk about racism at work, to talk about politics at work. Because if you're going to have a working class organisation and and a rank and file group that's leading campaigns and defending jobs and defending 
work, then you need to be, a, 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 you know, one with the world. You need to understand how the world works and have a position on, on questions on race and on transphobia. Otherwise, you're hobbled in terms of being able to lead. And if we're trying to build a working class that can lead, then you, you know, we need to bring in the issues, all the issues that are affecting people in their day-to-day -day lives. Otherwise, we're going to have divisions inside, inside the workplace and, and more broadly. And that pragmatic, it's a pragmatic response that, that we need to be political because we want to win. Yeah, I'd add to that. I think there's often a mistaken view about what bread and butter issues are as well. Anyone who's sort of been around activism, I'm sure has seen an MUA flag flying at a rally, um, but I can tell you it's very different on the job. There is, you know, those debates. Like I often like to tell the story of how my workplace, we went out on strike when the climate striking students went out in 2019 and we, we did and we were able actually to take, we were only able to take that strike action legally because it was within our bargaining period. So it wasn't uh, in defiance of the law, but we lined it up on that particular day. What I don't so often explain is that the number of people that actually bothered to come to the rally, you know, could count them on, on two hands. Most people just went home. So those debates are you know alive and well on the waterfront as well but on that topic of climate change we also had an experience at the end of 2019 with the horrific bushfires in Sydney where the smoke was coming in so thick into the city that not only maritime workers but you know many many outdoor workers uh, had to take some kind of action about not working in that smoke um, because it wasn't safe to do so and the MUA did a lot of work to sort of look into the safety standards of working in you know particulate matter and what were the safe levels and so on but that that was you know climate change was coming into our workplace the climate crisis you know doesn't just exist when you you know leave your leave your shift and more and more I think we're going to you know we see that overlap all the time and actually making that argument, breaking it down, this is a class issue. This does affect us as at work as workers. That's that's part of the argument. And I think I would say just generally that unions that don't take up social issues, either at the national or at the workplace level, often tend to be weaker industrially because it means they're not actually challenging backwardness amongst their members. If you don't take up questions around sexism or racism, you're much more likely to have a divided workforce. And it's also the case that sometimes, and I've had experience of this, where workers will take action over a social issue where they won't over an economic issue. I was working in a newspaper, it, this is in England many years ago, where we had a vote on whether or not to take strike action over the pay claim, and members voted against taking industrial action. A week or two later, the paper published a horrifically homophobic article and we held a union meeting and people voted to go on strike if management didn't publish a right of reply and an apology uh, and give the union uh, a right of reply as well in the newspaper. So people who felt underconfident or undermotivated at that point to strike over wages were prepared to take strike action 
uh, over homophobia and we won. We didn't take the strike action. Management backed down and basically conceded everything we wanted. So the idea that it's somehow strike act, economic issues lead to confidence over econo- uh, political issues uh, and that there's a fixed relationship between the two is, is not true in, in my experience. It's also a question of solidarity. Like one, you know, in terms of actually the arguments I make to my workmates, sometimes I say, well, who's going to come for, come to defend us? You know, where Wolfies are, you know, hammered in the papers, we're seen as bludgers, we're seen as overpaid. You know, it's actually, it's also actually about being out there in the community and showing that you are willing to stand up and use that power and use the conditions that you've won for yourself to actually create a better standard of living and a better quality of life for everyone. And that pays dividends, you know, like solidarity is a two-way street because one day, maybe very soon, we're going to need people coming and, you know, standing on our picket lines and you have to build that. You can't wait until the moment of crisis before you go out and make those connections to build, you know, a strong, a strong union movement. And that's not an abstract argument. I remember in 1998 when the Howard government launched its massive attack on the Maritime Union to try to smash it. One of the reasons many people gave who came onto the MUA picket lines was they were responding to what the MUA had done, for instance, in the campaign against apartheid in South Africa and many other social issues, um, stoppages over uranium being transported or even over... Uh, rainforest timber and it was the sense that the MUA had been there for other people meant that many people responded by joining the the massive and in the end largely successful picket lines in in 98 so that that argument is is not abstract Erima it's it's absolutely lived experience. You've talked a little bit um, all of you have talked a little bit about or touched on various disputes that you've been involved with in your working lives with varying results and also each of you have been involved in disputes in the past year or two. Uh, would you like to take us through some of your experiences and what you've learned more recently? The main experiences that I've had in the last couple of years has been around the uh, a wage theft campaign uh, led by casuals at RMIT and that campaign, <clears throat> as I mentioned earlier, was kicked off through a series of intense debates at the beginning of COVID over how to deal with what the universities were pushing, which was um, uh, wage cuts and mass layoffs. And after the officials' framework proposal, an accord proposal with uh, university management fell apart under pressure, there was a blossoming of casual groups and they initially, many of them initially basically had the view that you needed to, you basically had to set up a separate union or we had debates around um, how the official, we can't work with the officials anymore, fairly negative approaches and, and heroic sort of ideals about what an organisation of casuals could do. At RMIT, we focused on concrete specific issues to build the casuals network around marking, back pay for marking of essays. And that was a 
way of cohering people into fortnightly meetings where we heard, as new people kept on coming, the day-to-day the -day grievances that were going on with people. And we tried to separate. People had to vent and talk about this, but then we pushed that onto some of the organisers to deal with on a weekly basis, and we chased them up on a weekly basis about how they were going over particular issues. What we focused on was the concrete issues around the campaign in the second half of the meetings after people had vented about organising around that. And one of the proposals that we had to help build that was to protest. And in June, um, the officials actually put up a National Day of Action proposal. And at RMIT, we uh, were in the middle of lockdown in Victoria and um, we weren't supposed to organise groups that at that point the rules were of more than 15 people uh, at any one spot. And so we organised around uh, the eight-hour day monument, people might know, outside Trades Hall, and various spots around that. We got Melbourne University casual group to be involved. And got 50 people there, uh, despite no official support from any of uh, anybody in the Victorian division of the office. In fact, we had opposition uh, to that um, protest. Uh, they wouldn't allow us to have access to members' email addresses to be able to contact them to publicise it, for example. But despite that, we organised the protest and it helped catalyse, really, the Casuals Network in a way that uh, meant that there was a new layer of activists that wanted to lead that came out of that. And it, was, it's, it took a year's hard work and also fight to finally win the officials back to supporting us in this campaign and that we drove. And we got um, $12 million back pay, backdated to 2014. Some members got uh, $60,000 just from that one specific concrete issue around back pay for marking uh, that was being underpaid. So in that sense, um, the protests matter during the COVID lockdown. And that was a political argument that we needed to make against um, many people on the left who uncritically supported the Andrews government's lockdown laws. And, and we had to at least deal with that to the extent that gave people enough confidence to come out for a little protest like that. And um, it's that confidence, as I said, was um, helped really strengthen the Casuals Network in terms of um, at RMIT. It was copied in in that approach uh, around the Professionals Network got set up, uh, a rank and file group around the Professionals got set up, and other it strengthened the union more generally. So that, I thought that that was um, an experience where we initiated it. We won members to it, built their confidence, built their leadership uh, to the extent that a dozen of them spoke at a um, sort of a truth to power type uh, Zoom meeting to um, the Vice-Chancellor and they gained immense confidence out of that and pride amongst uh, a lot of the other members. Yeah, so it, uh, it uh, required both a politics and that... Uh, it became an issue, not just at RMIT, but also campaigns at Melbourne Uni and Sydney Uni and other places. That meant that the Fair Work Commission took it up, 
the other bodies, there was a, um, a Senate hearing set up for it, and, it, and it, we, through this process, we got the officials to one to the idea that these campaigns mattered, and then they started to lead them. And they could, good luck to them. <laughs> it was good for us that they helped do that, and it uh, helped strengthen our campaign at RMIT when the state officials finally came on side and it brought home our victory. I'll, I'll build on from that because I think there's a similar experience uh, that started out. I've been organising at Sydney University for years around things like wage theft and we've had wins. We've clawed back from them a couple of hours for admin in a particular school. We've clawed back, you know, just a couple of weeks ago, actually, we had a win around postgraduate marking rates. But I think for, for us, uh, things really heated up with the latest enterprise bargaining round. And I really agree with what Erima said before about strikes being this incredible weapon that we're only allowed to use once every four years or so. Um, the kind of wins that we've been able to have once we were able to use workers' most powerful weapon have eclipsed kind of, to be honest, all of the wins that we've had in all of those years. Not that they weren't important, not that they weren't important in politically developing people, um, but, you know, sick pay, a clause stop against wage theft, 20% decasualization, hundreds of new jobs. It's just things that were unimaginable. If, you do. if we didn't have strikes, there's no way we could have them. But I think most exciting for me has probably been actually the building of a kind of a, a workplace organizing a rank and file workplace group, trying to bring in uh, workers from all, all different kind of areas uh, into um, a uh, you know, a fighting group with the rank and file action group that we started a, a, a year or so ago. Um, it was actually to contest the union elections, but we wanted to keep it going because the kind of politics we wanted to see represented in the union, we wanted to see living, you know, day in, day out in the branch. If I was to say one lesson that I've kind of picked up through this, it's that I think you can come, you can go, you can hear some of these stories about the union bureaucracy and have a wrong understanding in your head that the union bureaucracy is kind of this Thing, this thing sitting over there uh, that you have to outmaneuver and try and you know win the vote one day and there's going to and it's true you know for us there's going to be a vote one day to wind that down the strikes and wind down the struggle or to continue on but it's much it's about much more than that vote or which officials in or whether we can vote a left official in it's actually about building a politics from the ground up and I think a ground up socialist politics that is about workplace organizing that it's about building workplace activists activists because as, as one socialist, you can only talk to so many people. But if you can get those so many people talking to so many people and those so many people talking to so many people and all of you having a bit of a message that we're going to strike, we're going to win, this is this is the way forwards, I think building that politics is a much more positive vision. It's not just a negative vision of fuck the officials uh, or, or a negative vision of, oh, I don't think we can win. It's a, it's a positive vision of, of, of how we can win it. Just to give a couple of examples uh, from, say, the last week uh, that I think uh, show that. So, for example, uh, we took up some issues in the student centre where they're um, having mass sackings and workplace activists, wo sorry, people who are not workplace activists, not even union members, have started making their own posters. There's about seven or eight different posters against the students, uh, student centre job cuts. Union membership there in that, in that centre has gone up. It's almost doubled uh, in the last week. Uh, from people organising, and that's from uh, us not only supporting the campaign, but then putting it in our weekly bulletin that we go and give out to everyone else and say, look what they're doing at the Student Centre, can they be doing that with you? Actually, in the last week, another issue has arisen in a, 
faculty of medicine health where they have a new edict stopping people from working from home and for those workers that was the number one issue and now they're organizing and making their own posters around that and i think um i guess important in building those politics has been having this bulletin that we were able to use that kind of tries to organize and put those stories so that everyone else can read about them and they can sign the petition or put up the poster or help in whatever way they can, but also see an example of what they could be doing in their workplace to help build the strikes and, and build the next steps. And I think also important is having the editorial that says, this is the next steps. We think we can continue the strikes. We say the next meeting, vote yes to the strikes, vote no to the deal. Um, and, and actually having that kind of a network is so important. So in the last week, management came to us with a new proposal that said, we're going to give you this, we're going to give you this, we're going to give you the 40-40-20, we're going to give you sick pay, we're going to give you this. Is this enough for you to fold? And we were able to, within half an hour's notice, call a workplace activist meeting and get people from all over. And, and you know, obviously, I think we were going to say, say to, to uh, put say no to the deal. But instead of going into that meeting saying, I reckon it, I reckon we shouldn't take it, I was able to say, no, I know the law faculty is behind us. I know FMH is behind us. I think we can get maths. Actually having those net, net, networks of workplace activists, when you're talking about a workplace of 10,000 people and 2,000 union members or more than that, you need those networks to actually know what's going on and then be able to you know, bring all of that knowledge together and, and, and try and push it out as a, as a united uh, political message. So I think it's a very exciting time, you know, uh, another big strike on census date next week, Big another big mo meeting. Last week we had the incredible 266 versus 266 tied vote to postpone or no, not to postpone. The, the struggle is, you know, on a knife's edge. And so every little bit of organising we can do to talk to all of those different members, even the no voters, we need to convince them, listen to them, try and bring them into the strikes for the next position. So, yeah, I think for, for me that lesson about how to build, you know, a socialist politics from the ground up. That's probably my biggest lesson that I'm grappling with. Those are both really inspiring, uh, yeah, examples, struggles that I've been following. And I mean, I'd say the first lesson that, that comes up for me from that is, you know, we need to build solidarity. We need much more of that politics. We need to have people with that revolutionary rank and file perspective in every workplace, in, in every struggle. And I guess some of my lessons are a little more contradictory, you might say, a little more bitter sweet. And that only, you know, has confirmed to me even more the need for our politics. I mean, we've come out of a very long, drawn out three year battle for our uh, EBA that was signed over a year ago now and we did we did have you know some really important victories within that we won a roster for all permanent employees uh, we have limited uh, casualization to a cap of maximum of 30 casuals with a clear pathway to permanency and you know there was other you know, good things we got in our agreement. We got a, an automation clause, which provides protection against redundancies in the case of automation. We got, you know, domestic violence leave. We also, you know, gave up some things that I don't think we should have or needed to. But the bigger lesson for me is actually what's happened since the deal's been signed, because that is also when the period for being able to take strike action closes. And watching the company 
manipulate, you know, come out of the gates with ready to breach the agreement, uh, suddenly come up with a new interpretation of our public holiday rates, launch uh, an automation plan and try to bastardize the automation clause we have in there by saying, well, this isn't real automation. It's a software upgrade. And they're taking us to court to argue it's only a software upgrade and they don't need to abide by that automation clause. Uh, Ripping us off money that was overtime, I guess you'd say, from the last roster uh, on the transition to our, our proper new roster that they're just simply not paying. In other words, outright wage theft. It's hard to win, you know, the same sort of sympathy for wage theft for warfies, but it's exactly, you know, comes down to exactly the same thing as what's happening, you know, to 7-Eleven workers. And people are getting really, really frustrated with relying on the courts because that is essentially our disputes process, as they call it, is everything goes to the courts and it's become like a graveyard of disputes. We've had disputes sitting in there for six years. And the problem is that even if you have a good shot, it can be years until that result is felt and all the anger of that moment when people want to fight is wasted. You know, you don't you don't actually, there's nothing to sink your teeth into. You don't get to use that opportunity. And by the time that decision comes around, often, very most mostly, we lose. But then, uh, you know, there's no retaliation because you've forgotten what the, pretty much forgotten what the issue was. It was three years ago. Other things have happened. You're on to other fights. It's really disempowering. And... We actually did take, decide to take it into our own hands at work um, by, you know, essentially choosing not to do overtime and something that took a lot of, you know, talking and uh, discussions, you know, around the smokery tables and whatever because we couldn't do it in an open way. You can't take a vote on it. You can't put it in writing, you know, this podcast, what I'm saying right now, might end up in the Fair Work Commission. Who knows? But that's seriously the the, the conditions you're operating under. But it, it had just got to that point where, you know, I think that if we don't take some of that into our own hands, it's really going to, you know, impact the kind of reputation of unionism in a big way. And we have to show that we can do something about it. Um, and actually, we drove the company to start making offers to us. They were a bit of a joke of an offer, but it showed we were getting to them. It took three months, uh, but they started coming to us. And when that didn't work because their offers weren't good enough, they sacked one of our leading delegates and essentially blackmailed us into working overtime again. And yeah word came down from on high that that was the price that uh, we had to pay. So, I mean, that was that was bittersweet in the sense that we actually showed we were able to take a united position, that we were able to do something ourselves. But, you know, ultimately that it was just too much, that straitjacket, without having open backing to openly defy the laws in a coordinated way and to be able to have those debates out in the open to win that position, it just it wasn't possible to to continue 
with that. But I think, you know, one of the other lessons I learned through that was the need to talk to everyone. You know, you have to approach every single person with, you know, in the union or not in the union with the, you know, good faith and the idea that they could become, you know, part of that struggle too because it's it's that, that grafting work, that hard kind of rebuilding work that we have to take on. Just to finish with a bit more of a positive story, a little earlier than that, we actually uh, were able to get one of our workmates who was sacked back in the gate, um, an Indigenous warfie who's also a former world champion Australian boxer, uh, has quite a reputation, Kev, uh, Kelly Bones, uh, if you've heard of him. Yeah, he was targeted as unfit for work and whilst it wasn't an example where we used industrial action, it certainly was, you know, the putting up the propaganda, having the arguments, busting the, the rumours that were going around that he must have done something wrong, um, saying that, you know, proving to people that if this could happen to him, it could happen to anyone because they were, you know, targeting someone on workers' comp, essentially. And the night before, it was going to be heard in the Fair Work Commission. The company just decided to pull the case and reinstate him and we got him back in the gate. So that was, you know, a really fantastic example. And those small wins matter to, to build up the confidence to take on the bigger battles. I just want to say this before we finish. Isn't it a great time with unemployment down so low and the cost of living pressures so high that objectively the trade union movement is in a fantastic position to be able to break through? And if it starts to break through somewhere, this is where a break could actually occur. So I think we should be extremely optimistic uh, about, you know, and, and, and adroit about seeing that these opportunities could easily pop up at the moment. Going back to the question about whether we can turn back these 40 years, you know, whether we're in this unending spiral of no strikes, no unions, I think, uh, look at the world. Capitalism is going to provide the crises. We can be sure of that, whether it's inflation, whether it's the climate change, meaning the bushfires and the floods, whether it's war, like massive world war over Taiwan or land war in Asia, like capitalism is creating the crises in places we, we don't expect. Systemic racism in the United States created the biggest protests, you know, the, the US has ever seen and protests all over the world. Capitalism is going to create the strike, the, the crises and workers are going are, are gonna to fight back. They're going to need to fight back. We're going to need to fight back, you know, at the workplace level and on the streets. But the question is, when we get there, how organised will we be? Will we have a politics about the right to strike saying, no, bad laws need to be broken and we need a general strike to, to stop this, or won't we? Will we have a politics of organising from below where every single workplace should be organised, you know, like a spider web with everybody coming in together, or won't be? We? So I think the problem for us is not to worry about whether there's going to be, you know, the need for mass strike action in the future, but to organise in the here and now over every little struggle at every workplace and, and, and on all the streets uh, so that we're prepared for when that does come. All right, I think that's a fantastic note on which to leave it. Thank you to all of you. Thanks, Thanks everybody. David. Thanks, Tommy.